Well, we'll put uh, five and a half years behind us of the Gospel of Mark. Um, and uh, before I begin a new series, that will be um, the start of uh, maybe next, uh, next month, Lord willing. Um, we're just going to go through some uh, messages. Um, I understand um, this is unusual for us, but bear with me until I come back uh, from from uh, America, and then after that we'll we'll commence on uh, on a new on a new book. Um, today's message is on the all sufficient God. All-sufficient God, or some say the self-sufficiency of God. This is what I believe to be the centrality of all other of God's attributes. A theologian once said that all attributes are derived from this one, whether love, compassion, grace, mercy, they're all flowing out of God's self-sufficiency. They, they spill out of God and they pour into his creation. Some other terms that are used that will be equivalent to the term self-sufficiency of God would be self-existence, or self-sustaining, or perfectly independent, or others maybe use a harder word. It's called aseity, the aseity of God. That is to say, in a nutshell anyway, that God in his existence, does not depend on anyone, anyone, or anything outside of himself to be content or to be happy. God alone is self-sufficient in everything and in every way and in all faculties, whether in his mind, in his counsel, in his love. He is self-sufficient. And furthermore, To be self-sufficient God, it also means that God is completely and freely nourishing, satisfying, providing His creation with all its needs. As we dare to approach such a subject as this, this amazing character of God, let us draw near with astonishment, with reverence, Let us tread carefully this holy ground of this self-sufficient God. Because after all, that same God who created the world out of nothing with a word, he's also able to melt the entire world with one word. This attribute of God, a self-sufficiency, as we dive into it to understand what it means, This attribute of God demands upon us to approach it with utter humility and with our faces to the dust, as this subject is the one of the most humbling truth that we would ever come to know. In fact, it is so humbling that the outline of today's message would be made up of a prayer. When we say, that God is self-sufficient, what are we saying? We are saying, number one, that God, you are not in need of us. When we're praying this way, we're, we're acknowledging 
that it is true that when it comes to God's essence, His substance, who He is, we're not essential to Him. We're not important to Him. That's a humbling reality. But He is of absolute necessity to all of us. So what is the first point? God is not in need of us. We're not going to look at one passage only. We'll be focusing on many various different passages that point to this reality. And the first one is in Job 22, verse 2. You can just hear me. You don't have to go through or else it's up to you. Feel free to follow me uh, by opening your passages. But um, I'm just going to continue. Job 22, verse 2, it says, Can a strong man be of use to God? Or a wise man be useful to him? This is a rhetorical question. The answer, in other words, is obvious. Surely God doesn't need our help. One of the hardest things to admit is that God doesn't need us to meet some unfulfilled need. God doesn't need us to defend Him or even to elevate Him. The word need is not in God's dictionary. Psalm 50 verse 9-12 says, I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. Why? For the world is mine and all it contains. What this is saying in a nutshell is that God has no need of us. When God gives us anything, it is not so that we can somehow help him to fix something in him that needs fixing. He's not dependent on us. If he was, we would have been worshipping an imperfect God. In Jeremiah 10, 3 to 7, we're looking to a little bit closer now as God compares himself with other false gods, with the idols, even the idols that we, we may be chasing after today. And it reads in verse 3, it says, For the customs of the peoples are delusion, because it is wood cut from the forest. That is talking about the idols back in those days. The work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool, meaning idols, other false gods. They need you to cut it out of a tree somewhere. And verse 4 says, they decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Meaning, when you cut out that god and you and you look at it, you discover that it's not so glorious. That it's ugly so much that it needs you to beautify it. In verse 5 it says, Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they, and they cannot speak. Other gods are mute, they're dumb, they can't communicate. They must be carried. Because they cannot walk. 
They can't move. And because they can't move, they need you to carry them wherever you go. So the Lord here is mocking the insufficiency of the false gods because they're fully dependent on the worshippers. All other man-made gods need man's help. But what about Yahweh? What about the God of heaven and earth? Verse 6. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great and great is your name in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is your due, for among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. And in what way is there none like our God? John 5, 25, 26 gives us an example. It says, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Meaning God is a source of life. We know that. Nobody gives God life. No one revives God. But not only does it mean that God is a source of life, it also means God is a creator, the sustainer of all kinds of lives. He gives physical and spiritual lives. All life is from Him, whether, from he whether in heaven or on earth. And what kind of life, when it says in Him there is life, it speaks of quality, not just forever eternal life it means quality life perfect and complete and joyful life god is the unfathomable ocean of sweet quality life he's not dependent on anyone to live this kind of way well, we read it this morning in psalm 16 and verse 11 it says in your presence is the fullness of joy and in your right hand are pleasures forever. What does that mean? It means that if men, if even all men are numb, dead to the joy of the Lord, it would not affect the sufficiency of God's happiness in himself, God will continue to remain the fullness of joy, whether we enter into his presence and experience it or not. Just like a blind man, even if he was born blind, if all men were born blind, it will not diminish the blazing radiance of the sun. God does not get affected by us. It is such a humbling truth. That friend, if you believe in God and surrender your life to him, it will not add to his inner glory. And it is equally true to deny him, to reject him, and even to shake our fist against him will not take away from his perfection. 
Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Meaning before God's angels sang the first song, before the first wind blown across the planet, long before the first beam of light touched our earth, God had, has been absolutely satisfied and happy in himself. And forever will God be satisfied, self-sufficient. Had he needed us before eternity? He would have created us before eternity. But he didn't. And that's the kind of God that we worship. One more verse. So we can finish from that first point is Isaiah 40 verse 17. And it shows us why God doesn't need us. Why is it that God doesn't need us? All the nations are as what? Nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Below zero. How humbling. See, many Christians have this terrible idea about God. And I look at God and let's say, for example, God's love for the lost. And they see that and then they say, ah, oh, his love for the lost and inability to save them got him in a bit of a, a puddle of misery. His limited knowledge and lack of planning are not able to get him out of this puddle. And they kind of feel sorry for him. And they want to give him a hand to get him out of this mess that he got himself into. And they say, ah, oh, I feel sorry for God. Look at his son. He, he bled and died and he kind of needs me to go to missionary field or to be a Sunday school teacher or, or ministry of some sort. Brothers, he does not need anyone. God, who is self-sufficient in his strength, he doesn't need help from anyone. Even if all the populations of all the nations were atheists. All that God needs is just a disobedient prophet like Jonah, and he would turn the entire city upside down and would cause a revival beyond our imagination. We have people that would say, oh, if that multi-million dollar Hollywood actor, oh, if he would just be saved. Or, or the American president, Joe Biden, if he would just get saved. Oh, man, or some intelligent dude, some professor at a great university, if he just comes to saving faith, man. This guy would, would just turn the whole world upside down. And God then would be very happy God. I want to tell you that God doesn't need our finance. He doesn't need our talent. He doesn't need our gifts. God can work with the least of the least and still accomplish all of his plans exactly as he intended. That's what the Bible means when it says that he is self-sufficient. 
some self-promoted heroes. They think they are great evangelists. They are evangelistic warriors. And they say, we are the cream on the top of the cake. You know, from time to time, they like to flex their evangelistic muscles. And they say, well, I've got to reach out. God needs me to evangelize. No. God is self-sufficient in his strength. And he's able to raise anybody to preach the gospel if he would choose to. He's able to save anybody whom he wills to save, the Bible tells us. Would to God that he would teach us this truth, that we are not, that you, he is not in need of us. We are the ones who are in absolute need of him. That's the second point. So in the form of prayer, God, you are not in need of us. We are in absolute need of you. So as we come to this second point, I want to ask you a question. What, what is the meaning of life? What would you say? <clears throat> you know, so many philosophers dedicated the entirety of their lives to come to an answer to this question. What is the purpose of life? If I would ask you, how can we sum up the purpose of creation, fall and redemption in one sentence? If we could just give one singular meaning um, for our existence, what would the purpose be? What would it be? It would be this. When we have God, we have everything. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. All right, I'll repeat it one more time. So he says, he who has God and everything else, he has no more than, than he who has God only. This is the purpose for which God has chosen the elect, saved them, and is the very core of sanctifying us to be convinced that he is all we need. Revelation 22 verse 17, which is the last command in the last book of our Bible, in the last chapter of that book, it says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. And this shows us that there is an ocean of sufficiency in God for all of us to quench our thirst and inner cravings. But with that being said, it, sadly, there is no other attribute of God more than His self-sufficiency 
that is under attack by man. You see, God has a monopoly over this attribute. There's only one crown of self-sufficiency, and it is upon God's head. He's got a patent on it, and he won't share it with his creatures. He only chose to share the effect of it in our hearts in order to enjoy it and to proclaim it. But rather than embracing it, and rather than to be a mirror to reflect that God alone is sufficient for all things, rather than being a loudspeaker, projecting to the world that God alone satisfies. What does man do? Man foolishly in his wicked mind wants to climb up into the throne of God and rob that crown of sufficiency. And so he's so delusioned to think that he's wearing it. Even from young age, man thrives to be self-sufficient. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It says this. God says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares Yahweh. Why? For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to who for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. God here represents himself to be living waters. What is living waters? What does it mean to be living waters? It means constant nourishment, refreshing. It gives life, and it gives life freely. God gives freely and constantly nourishment and life to all his creatures. And this is why it says, be appalled, O heavens, at this shudder, be very desolate, meaning tremble, be disgusted. That's just something's ugly going on. The angels of heavens, their stomach turns. They are sick and they feel like they're going to vomit. Why? Why does God use such strong language? My people have committed to evils. They've forsaken me. They rejected me to be the self-sufficient God. The greatest insult is for the self-sufficient God to offer his being in order to satisfy men and yet men look at him and say, no, thank you. And God says, this is outrageous. It's like you slapped him across the face and his blood boils when we do that. For any man to reject God as his only satisfier of his soul is as absurd as a foolish child who is fully dependent on his parents to provide daily food for him. So much so that he's, he doesn't even know how to turn on the oven. And yet, in his ignorance, 
And while he's entirely dependent upon his parents, he would say to them, since I have food in the kitchen, I don't need you. How absurd. Think about it. How hungry would that child be if his parents would would stop feeding him just for, for a week? And yet, brothers and sisters, are we not more of foolish people if we, who are infinitely dependent upon God in every way, and yet reject Him to be the source of our satisfaction? And why do we reject Him? Simply because He is faithfully providing all things for us to enjoy. And that's crazy. I shared this story with um, many of you before, but when my, my son was four years old um, and he just, four or five, and he just started learning how to tie his shoelace and, and he, he just tries to tie it. And I say to him, let me help you. He says, and his words would be this, I'll do it, dad, I'll do it, I'll do it, dad. And I'm just standing there. And no matter how many times, for one million times, he tries to tie his shoelace, can't do it on his own. I do it, Dad. Just so that you don't pick only on one of my children, the other son. Again, when he's about four years old, I remember we went to a pool somewhere down in Germana. And... um, Somehow, he thinks he can take on uh, the uh, golden medal championship in swimming. He's never learned how to swim. And he jumps into the water. And I'm just standing here to catch him. He goes, move, Dad, move, move. I jump, I jump. (laughs) The only way he knows how to swim is like a fish. In the water, down. Can't float above the water. And, and, and I just have to pick him up and I put him back. And he says, move that, move that. I'll swim this time. I said, what's going on? Until I had to move away four meters so he can actually experience what it's like to swim like a fish. It's so silly. It's absurd, right? But why does it make us laugh? You know why? I'll tell you why. Beneath its silliness. We can identify with this sin. Sin of self-autonomy, self-sufficiency. Everyone wants to be self-sufficient. We depend on God for every breath, every pulse. And while every muscle fiber of our being is crying out for dependence upon God. Yet, we somehow think that we can live on our own. Others don't believe that God alone satisfies for all things. That's other people, not us, okay? So what do they do? One would say in his mind, doesn't have to say it verbally. Surely... I need my spouse to love me. Surely I need 
to be respected. I can't live without that. God is not enough. Surely I need to get more cash and better business in order, in order to be happy. And in our sinful mind, we bite the very hand that feeds us and gives us life and sustenance. Brothers, sisters, our biggest problem is not that our spouses are disrespectful and unloving or our children are unruly or that we have financial calamity. Brothers, our biggest problem is that we're not resting in the fact that God is all we need. So we work longer hours than we should, motivated by wanting to claim self-autonomy, and we call it, I'm just working harder because I want to be a faithful husband. And we let the church and our family struggle. Let's be honest. We think it's easier to look to people and to silver and gold to relieve our emptiness. And when we find that we get some respect from people or uh, earning a bit extra money, we might even feel that we have just filled our infinite cravings. And sadly, this feeling deceives us. It affirms our sinful idea that delusions our mind to think that stuff might be the answer to our need for satisfaction. So we chase after them with passion. But in a a lot of self-sufficiency of God, we come to the realization that all of this is just a facade. It's not true. Vanity of vanity and grasping of the wind. I want to tell you that any and all kinds of cravings for true sufficiency can only be met in the living God through Jesus Christ. None of us is designed to be self-sufficient. And nothing in this creation could ever satisfy these inner cravings. Only God alone is self-sufficient and He loves to pour out the effect of this into His creation. Brothers, do we really believe that God is sufficient in all things? Then we would not be content with just only meeting Him for less than 15 minutes a day so that we would pursue entertainment and affairs of this world for the most of the day. And even while we do this, while we are guilty of this, yet God says in his all-sufficiency, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Psalm 81 verse 10. Him and him alone can say, I will heal their apostasy, I will love them freely. Hosea 14 verse 4. And Psalm 107 verse 9 tells us that God satisfies the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he fills with what is good. Meaning those who seek after him will find him sufficient for all necessity of life. 
They don't need any fluffy feelings. They don't need an idol with four wheels. No need for a love for, of a spouse or a respect of a teenager child. Why? God alone offers to satisfy our deepest longing and He promises to meet our infinite strongest cravings with His endless ocean of grace. Or simply put, we are in need of Him and He's utterly sufficient to meet our needs. So number one, God. You are not in need of us. Two, we are in absolute need of you. Three, so to display your sufficiency in our lives. If God doesn't need us, why did he create us? Why did he create the world? Why? Why did God create the world? Is it, you know, to entertain himself because he was bored? Is God, before eternity passed, living in self-isolation? And, and so he decided to create a glorified version of Netflix? You know, like, uh, what's it called? The boring episode that I would never, ever watch. Called Big Brother, you know, is he just just God wants to put a camera and be entertained because he's kind of bored and all alone by himself? No, God has never felt lonely because self sufficiency also means that the Father has forever been content with the Son, and the Son has always been ecstatic about the Father. When God wanted, quote-unquote, when he wanted to create the world, this want arose out of his good pleasure. And what is the intended purpose of this good pleasure? You know what it is? To put on display his unfathomable glory. The purpose of his good pleasure is simply this, to manifest his glory in and through us. And that's why it's the third point. So to display your sufficiency in our lives. This is the way we are to worship God, to, to serve God, is to put on display His self-sufficiency. Scripture, to back up this, Acts 17, 24-25, says the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now pay attention to verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though, what? He needed anything. What a humbling truth that we must pay careful attention to. Because God, who is self-sufficient, He is not to be served by human hands as though He is in need of anything. We must not serve God the same way we are to serve other people. 
Why do we serve other people? Because they need our service, right? But that's not why we serve God. God does not need our service. But yet, at the same time, the Bible commands us to serve him, right? How do we serve God who does not need our service? Well, let's take it one step back. Why is it that we can't serve God the same way that we serve other people? Let's continue with that passage. It says, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. God does not receive anything from anyone. He never does. He only gives. So I ask that same question again. How do we serve a self-sufficient God who doesn't need our service? I'm going to give you two passages and then I'm going to unpack it for you. Psalm 123 verse 1 and 2, it says, To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold as the eyes of servants. Look to the hand of their master. So we're talking about service now. In the context of serving God. As the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to Yahweh, our God, until he is gracious to us. That's the first passage. Let me share with you the second passage. Philippians 3, 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. In the first passage, there is receiving grace. In the second passage, it tells us that there has to be a loss in order to gain. What's Paul saying here? What is the psalmist saying here? It means this, that we chase hard after him. We press on forward to receive satisfaction from him. And as you're pursuing him, whatever you're doing is that you're showing to the world that your sufficiency is in him. You abandon the fleeting pleasures of this world, whether it's the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. You leave that to the children of darkness. But for us, we who belong to the light, we crucify our flesh with all of its lustful desires. Why? Why do we do that? Because we want to drown our hearts in God who is all satisfying. So we go hard after the all-sufficient Christ. We wrestle with him, whether in poverty or riches, in sickness or in health. Whether the closest people to us seek after his glory or not. Or even when everyone around us is settled for the two cents worth of some dirt cheap pleasure. And they mock us and they ridicule us. We serve God. We serve God. 
How do we serve Him? By showing to the world that we place our most intense craving at His feet. We serve Him by displaying to the world that it's not our phone that satisfies us. That it's not Facebook or Instagram or whatever the latest social media app that we have that satisfies our craving. It is God that saves our cravings. And we do that either by praying or obeying. So we're not saying here that we don't evangelize. Or we don't serve or work in order to feed our family and be faithful husbands. We're not saying that. But what we're saying is that we do all things out of need. And what is our need? We want God. We evangelize because we want God to be on display. We want God. We work because we want God. The cry of our heart at all times is that we're serving this way because God fills our deepest needs when we are obedient to Him. And as He generously satisfies your heart and my heart with His presence, with His power, with His love, we are serving Him by showing to the world that we are being needy beggars. Desperate for his glorious majesty. And as our awesome God is displayed, that he truly is the generous giver of abundant life. This is the purpose of our creation. In summary, how do we serve a self-sufficient God who doesn't need our service? By receiving his sufficiency from him. And then putting that on display for the world to see. You know, sometimes we fall into this trap and we think that somehow when we perform services on their own, that we're glorifying God. Somehow that we think that we just read the Bible or cut other people's lawns or help others, lending some needy person a hand. And we think when we do that, we're walking in a path of glorifying God. But think about it, brothers. And sisters, if this was true, then how different would it be from the Pharisees who in one hand crucified our Lord and yet on the other hand memorized scripture? How different would that be from our next door good atheist neighbor who decides to live a decent life? Is the Pharisee and the good decent atheist neighbor Actually glorifying God? God is glorified not so much in the work that we do for Him, but when He works in and through us, putting on display to the world how satisfying He really is. It is to this end God brings sufferings to even His own children, His servants, even as we minister to Him. He brings harsh trials. So in the school of sufferings, he teaches us that the right kind of service that we serve because we want him. 
And as we're obeying him while we're suffering, we're putting on display that our sufficiency is not found in a service in and of itself or the success of it, but in God who meets our needs. Let me give an example in the scripture because God taught the apostle Paul this truth. He taught him this truth. Paul had a thorn in his flesh, it tells us, and it speaks of some severe, painful circumstances in his life in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And in verse 8, Paul says, Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. So God, so Paul wanted God to take this away from him. But listen to what he says in verse 9. He says, He said to me, that's Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. Not the success of your ministry is sufficient for you. Not ministry in and of itself is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. And then Paul responds and he says, most gladly. What satisfies me the most. Therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. What satisfies me the most, most gladly, is not the ministry nor the success of the ministry, but in the power of Christ dwells in me. God is saying, what Jesus is saying to Paul, Paul, you need this trial in your life. Paul, as I give you a thorn, it is to expose that there is pride in you. And you suffering as I wrestle with you to the ground. It will feel like I'm breaking you. But when you learn to submit to my will, yield to me, trust me that this is for your own good, And then you begin to put to death your pride, Paul. Only then will you know that the self-sufficient God is all you need. When you carry this attitude with you, in your service, in your ministry, only then will I be glorified in you. Brothers and sisters, what God did to the Apostle Paul, he does this to every child that he loves. Every child. He brings us all to, he brings trials into our lives. So in the wilderness of our suffering, God teaches us that he is a seven-star Oasis in the midst of this wilderness. And when the highlight of our lives is on the sufficiency of God, then He's glorified. God, you are not in need of us. We are in absolute need of you. That is to say, we're in absolute need of His sufficiency, His satisfaction.
So to display your sufficiency in our lives. This is so crucial to understand. And brothers, you know, this is why the Bible doesn't just call us to suffer for what is right, but it calls us to endure suffering. 1 Peter 2.20 That's why the Bible does not just only command us to be obedient, but it commands us to be obedient from the heart. Romans 6.17 Oh, when we give, the Bible doesn't command us to give, but why is it that the Bible commands us to give cheerfully? 2 Corinthians 9.7 Or even when we're persecuted, it's not about the persecution that we experience, but it's about the joy. And to be glad when we are persecuted. Matthew 5.11. Why is that? It's so that when we give and the, and the world looks at us and say, why are you giving cheerfully? When you're obedient and the world says, this is crazy. Why are you obedient from the heart? Or when you're persecuted and in the face of persecution, you respond by being joyful, being glad. And the world just goes bizarre, short circuit. How is it that you're so joyful in the midst of persecution? We would respond and say, you don't understand. You don't understand. The reason why we are so joyful while we're persecuted, why we endure while we're suffering it's because our satisfaction is in God, who is self-sufficient. And out of that self-sufficiency, as spills out of him, and it pours, and it's filling my heart. I cannot but rejoice. I cannot but endure and obey from the heart. Because God, it's all I need. And it's only then, as the world sees how we respond to trials, that God will be glorified. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, what a humbling truth it is to know that you and you alone self-sufficient and in that self-sufficiency you are a fountain of living waters would you lord cause our spiritual taste buds to to conclude that all other kinds of water to be bitter and only you lord god is a sweet, nourishing, fulfilling kind of water. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.